0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of not even past and hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres. Our guest in the studio today is Patrick Olivelle, who's a professor in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of Texas, where he works on political, economic, and legal texts of ancient India. And today, he's going to be talking to us about two of the empires of ancient India. Welcome, Dr. Olivelle. Thank you very much. Uh, So let's start chronologically um, with this period of India. What was notable about it, and, and what are the two empires that we're going to be talking about today? The two empires are the Maori Empire, which is the first one, uh,
1: from about the 4th to the 3rd century. And then the second one is the Gupta that goes from the 4th century to the 6th century after Christ. So it's a period of about six 700 years. I have called this period the period between the empires, the two major empires. And that has been the seminal period, Indian history, everything that you associate with India, whether it is uh, literature, uh, religion, uh, or architecture, uh, would come from this period. Um, the major philosophical traditions, their major works were written during this period. If you talk about the yoga sutras, which are the foundational texts of yoga, were written during this period. Almost all of the Buddhist canonical literature was written during this period. So you have this period that is that is so seminal that most of what we associate with India, for example, take um, the major temples,
0: uh, architectural monuments, all coming from this period. So... Um, Chronologically, we're, we're going to begin in about the 4th century BC. Uh, so what was it that propelled the first of these two empires to rise? What was going on and, and, and how did they consolidate power? We know very little about this period. In all likelihood, uh, there was the foreign incursion of Alexander
1: the Great coming into northwest India. Uh, defeated many of the kings over there, which seemed to have left a power vacuum in northern India immediately after Alexander withdrew uh, Chandragupta, probably a local king, uh, rose to power and uh, took his capital in eastern india today it 's called Patna. those days it was called Pataliputra as his capital, and uh, he his son and his grandson, who is the great Ashoka, consolidated power over a vast area of northern india uh, and Ashoka actually brought it all the way west to Afghanistan and south to what is today southern india, uh, Karnataka, that area where the Mysore and all that and uh, and that's where probably the largest empire before the british took place uh, almost all of india but going all the way into afghanistan and pakistan
0: uh, was under the power of this single king ashoka That's quite an accomplishment, particularly in the pre-modern era, for an empire to be able to rule over such a large territory. How did they control that politically, militarily, and economically? It is very unclear. Uh, It is clear that he did not control
1: every inch of this territory. He controlled, I think, the major trade routes, the major population centers. How we know that he uh, controlled this area is that he left the first inscriptions of India, both pillar and rock inscriptions. Uh, We have found them in Afghanistan. Uh, We have a bilingual inscription in Greek and Aramaic, uh, which is in Kandahar. Uh, We have uh, inscriptions uh, in southern India. We have inscriptions all around what is today the eastern seaboard as well as the western seaboard and going all the way into what is today Nepal. So he left this, his
0: fingerprints all over this area with his inscriptions. So what are written on these inscriptions? I know, for example, that one of the pillars appears on the 10 rupee note mm-hmm. uh, in India. So clearly they're very famous. Right. Um, and the uh, capital, the, the
1: line capital uh, is there in the Indian Indian currency and the Indian flag. Um, what is significant is that this is the first written document from India. It is interesting, such an ancient um, uh, civilization, for a thousand years almost, uh, operated without, as we know, something written. At least we don't have any examples of it. These are the first writings from India. Uh, we have texts predating it, but these were all oral texts. Yeah, uh, And the, what is interesting about these particular uh, inscriptions is that I have called them letters. They have the letter mode. He's writing to his people, he's writing to his uh, counsellors, uh, his officials, uh, and uh, they all preach a gospel of, uh, of morality, uh, especially of not killing Ahingsa, this is the earliest uh, expression of that non-injury, not killing. So here's the emperor who killed a lot of people to come to power and became a Buddhist. And uh, in his newfound faith, found this doing good, uh, being kind, uh, not killing as the, as the central
0: ethical principle. Yeah. Do we have any sense of what kind of king he was other than these written texts? Do we know how long he ruled or? Yeah, we know how long he ruled. He ruled from uh,
1: 268 to 233, thereabouts. Uh, We know that. And we know he was a king who was very powerful. Uh, He says in his uh, inscriptions that even though I have given up the sword, but I still have it. Uh, So this is something very interesting. He uh, had a bureaucracy, quite large, and we have very technical terms for the various people in his bureaucracy. So it must have been an extensive bureaucracy. He had a chancery uh, in his capital, Pataliputra, which produced a lot of documents. What I think is what we find here would be a very small percentage of what he actually wrote, because these were probably originated as written documents written uh, on paper of some kind, uh, and later anthologized, brought together, and then inscribed on stone. So uh, he must have had a chancery uh, that sent these things. He also boasts that he sent doctors and missionaries to countries outside of India. He talks about Egypt, Antioch, Rome, Sri Lanka, uh, where he sent his ambassadors So it was a uh, multi-pronged attempt to influence, I think what we can say, influence world affairs. Interesting. He thought that his main uh, word, which is a central word in Indian religion, called dharma, uh, and he defined it ethically. He saw that if everybody followed dharma, there will
0: be world peace. (laughs) Well... That's been a, a, a goal of many over the, over the centuries. Exactly. So do we know how the, the empire proceeded after Ashoka's rule? Not much. I think his
1: children were not as good or not as able as he was. And very soon, by the beginning of the second century uh, before Christ, 185 is the normal year given. Uh, his grandson probably was
0: assassinated and then the entire empire collapsed. So, what was going on between the fall of the Maurya Empire and and the rise of the Gupta? Um, there were many small regional kingdoms.
1: Uh, some of them we know about because of numismatic evidence. You have coins issued by these uh, by these kings uh, at this time. First century before Christ, second century before Christ, we have incursions into India by both the Bactrian kingdoms, the Greco-Bactrian kingdoms that was left behind in what is today Iran and Afghanistan after uh, Alexander the Great left. We have incursions from especially two groups of Central Asian nomadic Fighters, first called Shakas, who came to India in the first century before Christ, then the Kushanas, who were much larger and had a quite an extensive empire in central and western India, who came in the first century after Christ. And it was uh, the Guptas who actually finally defeated the Kushanas and took over their empire. And the Gupta Empire went from what is today Bengal. To probably Pakistan, but on a narrow, uh, uh, narrow line uh, across India, and did
0: not go down south. So it was much smaller in extent than Ashoka's. So you mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you sort of heard of this period as between the two empires. So what did the Gupta Empire accomplish that uh, sort of mirrored the Mauryas' accomplishments? Strangely enough, Guptas occupied the same capital
1: as the Mauryas, Pataliputra, same place. Uh, And uh, the very first uh, emperor, Chandragupta I, took on the same name as the very first emperor of the Mauryas. This was not accidental, I think. They were trying to lay claim to the old Maurya empire and legitimize their own uh, imperial ambitions, dynasty, by connections to that what happened during the Gupta period was the Gupta kingdom was a very rich kingdom. We have the largest number of gold coin coming from this period. Uh, gold was abandoned. Uh, it was also a time when literature and art flourished in India. Some of the major uh, poets of India, such as Kalidas, who has been called the Shakespeare of India, wrote during this period. Uh, much of what we call the ancient classical architecture of India comes from this period. So it was a, it was the time of great cultural
0: activity, uh, not just the political. What sorts of literature were being produced? You mentioned uh, Kalidasa um, as, as India's Shakespeare. So perhaps you could familiarize our listeners a little bit with Kalidasa and, and his works. Yeah. Now, Kalidasa was both a poet as well as a playwright. So he has written several uh,
1: plays, Uh, Sanskrit dramas, as well as uh, epic poems. Uh, His work influenced many of the 19th century Goethe and others uh, who saw him as one of the greatest poets of the world. But during this time, it was not just Kalidasa who wrote, but before him, a few centuries before him, you find the great Sanskrit epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, two of the major cultural monuments of India. Nobody knows exactly when these were produced, but the general view is that it was produced between about the first century before Christ and about the third century after Christ. Its final form may have taken place under the Guptas. So you have these two large... Mahabharata itself goes into about 20, 30 volumes it's, it's huge. Uh, Ramani is about a third of the size of the Mahabharata. Uh, two of the largest
0: epic poems in the world, much larger than Homer. So, given that these both also have uh, religious significance, is right. this a time that we also begin to see some crystallization within uh, the Vedic religious practice? Right. Uh, this
1: is the time when the old Vedic religious practice gradually gives way to what we would recognize today as Hindu. Uh, there were no temples before this period in India. We think of India as the land of temples. There were no monumental architecture devoted to Hindu uh, religion. The earliest monumental architecture of a religious nature comes from the Buddhist side, not from the Hindu side. It is during this time it happens. Uh, some of the major Uh, Hindu philosophical treatises would be written during this period I talked about the yoga sutras uh, and many of the other dealing with some of the crystallization of the Upanishadic thought about Brahman about that the whole world is one and the world of multiplicity is illusory all of that come into being during this period this period is also the beginnings of what we call Hindu law and here we use the word law in the broadest sense of the word, both criminal and civil law, but also religious law, how to live a good life. You find the law code of Manu, which is the most famous in India, uh, was written probably around the second century after Christ. Uh, so this is the period when most, not all, but most of the major classical texts that we associate with India and with the Sanskrit language were produced. Also, during this time, you have most of the Buddhist texts being produced, both the Southern, the so called Hinayana texts, as well as the Mahayana. The Mahayana texts, especially, that were translated into Tibetan and, uh, and Chinese. So, all the influence on those East Asian cultures through Buddhism
0: took place through texts that were produced during this period. Yeah. So when you were discussing the Maori Empire, you mentioned the sort of attempt to influence countries outside of the borders of the empire. Do we see a similar effort during this period? No, that was started and ended with Ashoka, I
1: think. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so we do not find a similar interest, although there, it was the other way around. Most of the people, uh, most of the influence uh, into India comes from the outside, So, you find all the incursions Persian, Greek, uh, Central Asian, they all come from the other side. Uh, And then later on, the Turkish, with the Mughal Empire and the coming of the Muslims, of course, a much later period. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, ultimately, what was the fate of the Gupta Empire? Gupta Empire, as most ancient empires, gradually fell under its own weight, I think. Uh, It lasted longer than the Maurya. Uh, It lasted from 320, that is the generally accepted year when, uh, when Chandragupta came to power, until about the middle of the 5th century, maybe even a little later, because most of these empires don't collapse in a single day. They gradually decay. Uh, And so it it may take many decades before it finally is no longer visible on the ground.
0: Well, uh, that's all the time we have for today. Dr. Olivelle, thank you for being with us, uh, and we'll see you next time. You're most welcome. Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.